it's so good to be with you this morning. Uh, I'm so happy to have my family with me uh, here in Tuscaloosa. Uh, it's my first time to have my entire family come uh, to be here. And uh, my daughter got to experience her first Alabama football game yesterday. Uh, she was so excited. Uh, that's what you do when you go to Tuscaloosa, right? In, in the fall, you gotta you gotta go to gotta go to Brian Denny. Um, but I do want to come and bring you greetings uh, from uh, Pastor Saint On, your partner in church in Port-au-Prince, as well as uh, the broader Haiti Collective family. And I just want to begin by saying thank you for your investment in the work of the gospel around the world. I know you're involved in other places besides Haiti, but for, for this morning's purposes and for my life's purposes, I guess you, I guess you could say, Haiti Collective is uh, near and dear to our hearts. Um, you know, I don't know if you know exactly all that's taking place in Haiti right now. Uh, the, the, uh, the culture, the community, the, the, the country is in a process of redoing last year's presidential elections. And the church in Port-au-Prince with whom you partner with is in the area of Fort National. Fort National is right by the National Palace. It's where a lot of the manifestations and protests uh, lie. Um, let me encourage you to pray for them and to pray for their safety. Um, but even more for their bold witness of Jesus Christ and the hope of salvation for all who believe in him there in this area of Haiti. Uh, in recent trips, uh, we have had intentions of going to visit with Pastor St. On and to see the church there, but we have not been able or allowed to enter into that area due to the, the growing violence. Uh, so we encourage you to pray for Pastor St. On. We want to assure him of his fellow leaders uh, and the community of faith of our prayers and support and ongoing commitment to bring help and hope in Jesus' name. Uh, cross-cultural missions can be a, a tricky thing. Uh, in recent years, there has been a growing tide of criticism uh, regarding missions in general, but specifically short-term missions. In, in uh, 1989, uh, there were 120,000 short-term missionaries. But by 2003, the number had swollen to over 1 million short-term missionaries. Within the next three years, from 2003 to 2006, the number would double to 2.2 million short-term missionaries. In that same year, 2006, it was estimated that $1.6 billion was spent on short-term mission trips alone. Now, think about that for a minute and take this, this into consideration. Brian Fickert and Steve Corbett have written a very influential book called When Helping Hurts, and in their book, they talk about a story from an African uh, Christian leader who receives short-term missionaries. Uh, and from a host country perspective, he told the story about the elephant and the mouse, and here's what he said. Elephant and mouse were best friends. One day, elephant said, mouse, let's have a party. Animals gathered from far and near. They, they ate, they drank, and they sang, and they danced. And nobody celebrated more and danced harder than the elephant. After the party was over, elephant exclaimed, Mouse, did you ever go to a better party? What a blast. But mouse did not answer. Mouse, where are you? Elephant called. He looked around for his friend, and then he shrank back in horror. There at elephant's feet lay mouse. His little body was ground into dirt. He had been smashed by the big feet of his exuberant friend, Elephant. And then the Christian leader said, Sometimes that is what it is like to do missions with you Americans. The African storyteller commented, It's like dancing with an elephant. 
Now, the illustration points to the reality that we elephants are so often unaware and maybe even unconcerned with how we dance so long as we are part of the ever-growing short-term missions party. For some, the criticism can lie around what has been called, quote, missional tourism. The idea of traveling to a foreign country to experience a new place, to, to see a lot of cool sights, to take a lot of photos, and have a nice Facebook album to share with others. We have a tendency to take pictures of scenes that we find most shocking or revealing the depths of other people's poverty. That naked child with a poached belly bathing in a disease-infested water. Or a mud shack on the side of the road or the mom holding her baby while begging for money. These are all too common sights on our tour through an unknown culture. Other criticisms lie around the idea of Western missionaries having a, quote, Messiah complex. That is, we cross a culture and enter into their lives in order to save them. They have a problem, we have the answers. They have the need, we have the resources. They are broken, we can make them whole. Mission trips then highlight everything they don't have and everything they can't do while we focus on how much we can do for them in the shortest period of time. We are committed to changing the world and ushering in revival in seven days flat. Further still, I would argue that there is a more subtle and perhaps more dangerous problem accompanying short-term mission trips, and that is how they are planned. And by that, I mean long-term missions, missionaries or indigenous leaders invite us to come to their country and let us set the agenda for what to do. We want to give away lots of stuff. We want to see lots of people saved. We want to make as much of an impact as possible so that we can go back and report to others about how worthwhile the investment was. At the same time, we are asking leaders in host countries to alter their lifestyles, stop what they're doing, and facilitate our mission at their expense. And when the short-term mission team members leave, they do not have to worry about whatever mistakes or trouble or damage that may have happened in their country. But the indigenous leaders are left there to perhaps mop up or oftentimes do damage control for whatever intended or unintended consequences that may have accompanied that trip. Now, having laid out these criticisms, one has to wonder then, why should we be, be, why should we be participating in cross-cultural missions in the first place? Let me be upfront and say with you that yes, we should absolutely be involved in short-term cross-cultural missions. I believe in it so much that I would argue it is a non-negotiable distinctive of a biblically faithful church. So if that is true, then the question we must answer is, how do we engage in missions in a way that proves to be truly helpful and transformative long-term around the world so that churches are strengthened, disciples are made, and the glory of God is put on display? So this morning, I want to invite you to take your copy of God's Word and to look with me at a familiar passage recorded in the four Gospels. And I want to learn from the, the life and ministry of Jesus about how we can minister on mission in his name. So turn with me to the, the Gospel of Luke, to Luke chapter 9. And I want to begin with verse 1 and go down to verse 17. The focus will be on verse 10 through 17, but I want to provide the context, beginning with verse 1 in Luke chapter 9. Verse 1, we read, 
And he gathered the 12 together and gave them power and authority over all demons to cure diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. And he said to them, take nothing for your journey, no staff, nor bag, nor bread, nor money. And do not have two tunics. Whatever house you enter, stay there and from there depart. And wherever, you're, and wherever they do not receive you, when you leave that town, shake off the dust from your feet as a, as a testimony against them. And they departed and went through the villages, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. Now Herod the Tetrarch heard about all that was happening, and he was perplexed because it was said by some that John had been raised from the dead, by some that Elijah had appeared, and by others that one of the prophets of old had risen. Herod said, John I beheaded, but who is this about whom I hear such things? And he sought to see him. On their return, the apostles told him all that, he had, all that they had done. And he took them and withdrew apart to a town called Bethsaida. When the crowds learned it, they followed him. And he welcomed them and spoke to them of the kingdom of God and cured those who had need of healing. Now the day began to wear away, and the twelve came and said to him, Send the crowds away to go into the surrounding villages and countryside to find lodging and get provisions, for we are here in a desolate place. But he said to them, You give them something to eat. They said, We have no more than five loaves and two fish, unless we are to go and buy food for all these people. For there were about 5,000 men. Paraphrase there, I mean, a parenthesis, 5,000 men. It doesn't speak of women and children. could be at that time maybe fifteen to 20,000 people. And he said to his disciples, have them sit down in groups of about 50 each. And they did so and had them all sit down. And taking the five loaves and two fish, he looked up to heaven and set, and set a blessing over them. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the crowd. And they all ate and were satisfied. And what was left over was picked up, 12 baskets of broken pieces. Now, when we normally look at a text like this, we consider it from the perspective of what is happening there in that moment. Namely, that Jesus was performing the miracle of turning five loaves and two fish into a banqueting table to feed uh, for thousands of people. But this morning, I want to see a bigger picture and context wherein this miracle took place And I want to discover three observations about how we can apply that to cross-cultural missions in our world today. Number one, I want you to see that Jesus provided relief in the context of development. Jesus provided relief in the context of development. Now, notice how chapter 9 begins. What we see in Jesus commissioning his disciples is to go where he went, to say what he said, to live the way he lived, and to love the way he loved. We see throughout his earthly ministry that Jesus had 12 men in mind throughout everything he did. At the end of his life, Jesus would entrust the mission to these men to carry out the work of the kingdom of God on earth. Here we see the focus of developing these men, beginning to ramp up as they move from observers to becoming participants in his mission. We see that in verses 1 through 5. Throughout the rest of this chapter, you will see Jesus keeping the focus of the development of his disciples. In fact, you could say that the rest of his life, was this, this was a strategic focus. Robert Coleman, in his very influential book, The Master's Plan of Evangelism, said this, Jesus' method 
was not with programs to reach the multitudes, but with men whom the multitudes would follow. Men were to be his method of winning the world to God. In verse 10, we find these men, these disciples, returning to the master to give a report on what they had done. Now, interestingly enough, we we don't know what they said to Jesus, but we do know how Jesus responded. He took them and withdrew to this place called Bethsaida. Apparently, there was more training or teaching that they needed to hear from him. Perhaps he noticed some things in the report that needed to be corrected or developed, or maybe they needed to be encouraged. Now, we don't know the specifics, but we do know that Jesus was determined to teach and to train them as those to whom he would entrust the mission in the coming years. But the emphasis did not end there. We soon find out that the crowds had heard where Jesus had gone, and and they'd interrupted this concentrated time of development, of training those by imposing their needs upon him. But instead of turning them away, Luke says that he welcomed them. What was likely going to be a spiritual retreat with his disciples to get personalized training from their master turned into a ministry marathon of preaching and healing hundreds, perhaps thousands of people. Now, was Jesus going to ignore the development of his disciples here? No. What he was going to do is he was modeling to them what it meant to show compassion and minister to the hurting. Relief was taking place in the context of development. Never at any point in the passage do you see Jesus substituting relief for development. And yet, sadly, that is so often what is happening today in ministry methods. Let me explain. Relief and development are two paradigms for missionary engagement. Relief should be immediate, temporary, and seldom. Development should be present, ongoing, and long-term. Relief is an appropriate response to a natural or man-made disaster, such as as you experienced here in the terrible tornadoes that impacted your community. Outside resources and logistics and supplies and personnel flood in to stop the bleeding, to plug the holes, and make it possible for rehabilitation to begin. But what happens when relief becomes permanent? What happens when outside resources, personnel, and logistics are superimposed into a culture and community long-term? Well, the recipients of that help then become entirely dependent on that relief and thereby become increasingly vulnerable and fragile. What happens when that relief at some point goes away? We can construct buildings with our own hands, with our own money, without training indigenous workers to acquire new skills. We can donate mounds of clothes and shoes and flood the market with free stuff without helping local street vendors make a living for the same clothes and shoes that they're trying to sell in their own community. We could conduct elaborate vacation Bible school programs for children where they have crafts and games without giving thought to how that might indirectly impact how effective the teachers and caretakers would be the other 51 weeks out of the year. Now, do buildings need to be constructed? Do poor communities need food and clothing and shoes? Do the children need to be educated and cared for? Absolutely. But when our intervention is permanently based on relief rather than development, we cripple local mission. 
deepen layers of shame and guilt, and we foster an entitlement mentality and long-term vulnerability. Relief is appropriate at certain times, but it is always to be done in the context of development. Development puts the focus on equipping and empowering God's people in the community by teaching and training them, as we see what Jesus was doing in this passage. Now, development is messy and much less efficient than relief. It is slower and cannot be quantified or qualified in an infographic or could not be adequately measured by a one standalone mission trip. Rather, development has a cumulative focus of various missional initiatives, short-term mission trips, and gospel endeavors that increase the capacity of indigenous churches to take ownership of the needs and opportunities that lie before them. And that is what precisely Jesus did in this scene. So not only do we see Jesus providing relief in the context of development, we also see, number two, that Jesus chose to minister with and through his disciples. Now, what the disciples we see doing in this text uh, from, a, from a natural perspective, it makes sense. The day had worn away. Jesus was perhaps exhausted. And as the day had come to a close, now there's potentially 20,000 people that had amassed in, at, on this desolate place with nothing to eat and nowhere to go. So the easiest thing would then would be to, to come up, to close up shop and to send people their own way, to go into those villages and make provisions for themselves. But that is not what happened. Is it? Instead, Jesus turned to his disciples and told them something really, really remarkable. If you were in that moment, you could just capture the scene. He looks at them and says, You, you 12, you give that 20,000 people something to eat. Their master, who had commissioned them to go on mission in the first part of this chapter, is now commanding them to serve the people with resources that they did not have. Jesus could have made manna fall from heaven to feed the entire crowd gathered there that day. But instead, he chose to minister with and through his disciples. Now, you can imagine the confusion and desperation that they must have experienced. They told Jesus they had no more than five loaves and two fishes. What is that going to do for this massive crowd of people? Now, but... Imagine with me for a moment, if you were there that day and you had witnessed all that had happened, how should you respond to what you had just seen? Here we see in this text that hour after hour, Jesus preached and taught about the kingdom. Hour after hour, we see him heal all those who were sick. There's no one who's preached a message like Jesus has preached. There's no one who could heal like Jesus could heal. Lame men were walking for the first time. Blind men could see. Deaf people could hear. The lepers could be embraced. The dead were being raised to life. That is what was taking place that day in the midst of 20,000 people touched by the power of Jesus. Imagine what their conversation was just like. I was once lame but now I can walk. Now I was blind, but now I can see. Now my child was dead and now they're alive. Consider the gratitude, the joyful celebration. Those are right responses to who Jesus is and what he did that day. But look what happened to, to his disciples. Was that not their response? No. Instead, 
what we see is that there was a real disconnect between what Jesus was thinking and doing and what his disciples were thinking and doing. After all that Jesus had done, the best contribution his disciples could make that day was to form a committee and seek to advise Jesus on what he should do. Think about that. That should be almost breathtaking to us considering what Jesus actually did. Jesus, you need to tell these people to get out of here. Send them away to the villages. Why? We are in a desolate place. It does makes, makes no sense that they remain where they are. You see, the place had become to themselves more weighty and more heavy in their minds than the person that they were following. Their circumstances they were facing dominated their thoughts more than Christ, who had spent all day performing his power to heal. They had developed a high view of the problem and a low view of the problem solver. In fact, they had factored out Jesus and said that the only solution for the needs of the people were to go to the villages and the cities. How could you factor out Jesus when you just watched him do the impossible again and again and again? How could you think more highly of the problems and circumstances when you just watch miracles performed before your very eyes? It's no wonder that Jesus turned to his disciples and said to them, how about you give them something to eat? Now here's an important takeaway for us today as followers of Jesus. And I think it's just worth mentioning. If you have come to the place where in your spiritual life, your primary contribution is to advise and to criticize, there is a big connect, disconnect between you and Jesus. I'm not saying that you should never ask questions or probe into unclear matters. I am saying that if your activity among God's people surfaces most often in the form of interrogation or opposition to God's work, then this should be a red flag between you and God. Although the disciples had been called by Jesus and sent by Jesus, they were not thinking like Jesus or acting like Jesus. And that is still very possible between you and me today. We can call ourselves Christians and by proximity give some evidence of being religious while at the same time being far from the heart of God and absent from the work of God. Jesus chose to put his disciples front and center. While they had been on the periphery during the day, he was not going to allow them to stay there. The crowds came because of Jesus, but they were going to be ministered to by his disciples. The help that they would receive would not, would not come from his own hands, but from the hands and feet of his disciples. Jesus would repair that disconnect of his disciples by committing to their development. You see, Jesus owned their mess while performing his miracle. And he is doing the same today with you and me. It would be much easier for Jesus to do everything himself. He could have told his disciples to stay out and let him take care of everything since they apparently had not been doing anything in the first place. But Jesus knew that there would come a time when he would not be physically there to continue his kingdom work. Soon, Jesus would die on the cross He would be buried for three days and he would rise from the dead and ascend into heaven. And by his spirit, he would take residence 
in the hearts and lives of all of his disciples so that they would, quote, do greater works than he did on earth, as he would say in John 14. Now, he's not talking about greater works in kind, but greater works in degree. While there was only one of him physically on earth, there would then be millions of his disciples with his spirit living in them to accomplish the mission that he has entrusted to us. Now, how does, how does this apply to today with cross-cultural missions? Well, the answer is that the church, the local body of disciples, must be the center and the hub of all we do. You know, we're not heroes here to save the day. Jesus is the hero of every tribe and every tongue and every people in every generation throughout the history of the world. God is already there and he has a people for himself that we must come to serve. When we enter into a new cultural context, we begin first by asking God, what are you doing? What have you done among your people? Where are your people? What has God been doing in and through his indigenous church? How can we learn from them? And by listening to them, how does our involvement and intervention become shaped and formed by beginning with God's people in their context rather than seeking to impose our missional blueprint of predetermined ideas in their context. Far too often, indigenous leaders, local leaders, are left on the sidelines when we get involved in cross-cultural missions. We don't ask for their involvement invite them to, or invite them to participate. If we do, usually it is to execute our plans rather than asking them for their plans. How does our missional endeavors align with what they are already doing the other 51 or 50 weeks out of the year so that we can help shoulder their burden, lighten their load, and encourage the saints of God that we link arms with? No doubt when we do that, it will get messy and complicated. It will be frustrating at times and seems like no progress is being made. It will be tempting to take matters into our own, to our own hands and not worry about development. It will be tempting to say, you know what, man, God, you just don't get it. You just don't get it. We'll take it. We'll figure it out on our own. It's just too hard. Now, do you not think that all of those thoughts were at play between Jesus and his disciples? I mean, you can imagine what was maybe going through Jesus' mind as he's watching, as he's doing all these miracles and watching. Yeah, guys, at any point in the day, would you like to join in? But Jesus was determined to work with and through his disciples, not in spite of them. And we must do the same with God's people in whatever context we find ourselves today. You know, people know the difference when you, between ministering to them and for them rather than with them and through them. You can, you can feed people fish and report on how many, how many people you fed. And that's called relief. But you can train people how to fish and report on how many fishermen can now feed themselves. That's called development. When we consider the indigenous local church, we are going to join Jesus in the messy work of long-term transformation by investing in his people more than what we can produce. You see, the the output is not the primary goal. It's the outcome of people's lives. And so it's not about what we can do in a matter of hours or days, but it's it's a matter of what God is already doing through the days and weeks and years and how we join God in the goals that he has for his glory, for his church, and for his people. 
One-off mission trips can never produce the kind of kingdom outcomes Jesus intends for us to pursue. So we must push back against the cultural pressure of immediacy and efficiency by doing for others what they can do for themselves. Instead, we must lean in with humility and hope that Jesus will work through our messes to deliver his miracles to people who need him most. Brothers and sisters, the reason why we are as, a, as an organization like the Haiti Collective do what we do because we believe that short-term missions is best done in long-term commitments. And I am so grateful that you guys have seen that and embraced that. The long-term commitment, the cumulative effect that happens when we work together, partner together for gospel transformation. The results of that cannot be measured in a quarterly report or even an annual report. It'll be measured in a generational report. And it may take a generation for that kind of impact to happen. Well, thirdly, I want us to see third observation in what Jesus did in performing this miracle is that he provided, he provides a miracle, but not without a plan. The only other thing that we hear Jesus saying in this passage to his disciples was something really ordinary, right? It's, hey guys, how about you sit them down in groups of 50 each? Now I can think of a host of other things that Jesus could have said to his disciples at that moment, but the only thing that we know that Jesus said to his disciples was something Rather ordinary. It was like a matter of administration and organization. In fact, what we see here is that Jesus did have a pretty clear plan as to how he would minister to this massive amount of people. He mobilized his disciples and then he organized the crowd. The disciples were not responsible for the miracle, but the disciples would be responsible for the delivery and the administration of the miracle to his people. For us, it's a matter of stewardship, how we deliver and deploy our lives for the advancement of the gospel around the world. As we seek to be faithful, we should have a plan in place, a strategically wise and biblically sound plan that serves as a basis for how we execute our calling as his sent people in the world. As a missional people, it's important to know that we have a role to play in that plan. You know, not everyone may be called to go cross-culturally on, on a missions team. There are goers, but there are senders as well. Senders are those who hold the rope, who commit to pray, who give generously to the need, who stay connected to the mission with ongoing communication. Can I tell you, church, on the way down here yesterday, I listened to KJ's message. I felt his tears I love KJ and Lynn Pugh. And can I tell you how much it blessed my heart? It blessed my heart to know that they got a church that loves them so much. I, I was, my kids are playing in the back, going, going, getting ready to go to Bama pep rally, and I got tears going in my eyes in the front seat saying, Lord, thank you for Alberta, Alberta Baptist Church, how you are their joy and their crown. And there are sinners and there's goers. They see as a church, missions isn't a department of the church. Mission is a posture of the church in the world. And we all join in because we belong to Jesus and our identity in him has already defined and determined what we do. So the important thing is to know and to embrace what role and responsibility you play in being a part of that plan. You know, whether it's giving or sending or going or training We simply do not have the luxury to be indifferent about the plight of the lost and broken 
of the world. God's heart for the world bleeds into the hearts of his saints for his kingdom to come, for his gospel to be shared, and for his glory to be seen. And honestly, that is why the Haiti Collective exists. We don't exist for ourselves. We exist for local churches to help serve and equip American churches who are doing cross-cultural missions faithfully in other contexts, especially in Haiti. We exist to serve those churches in Haiti as we want to see them develop and, and make mature. Now, we're not saying that we're without problems. We're not saying that we have a perfect organization with the perfect plan. But I can tell you, we do have a plan. And we sought to take seriously the, the imperative to organize and to administrate the mission that God has entrusted to us so that local churches are strengthened, that disciples are made, that leaders are trained, and communities are impacted with the transforming love of Jesus Christ. You and I are called to go to desperate places with desperate people, but we don't have a desperate God. We will be in a position where the needs far exceed our resources to meet them. But the good news is that our miracle-working Savior is still working in and through his people today. And he has the ability to take a desperate place with a few loaves and fish and turn it into a banqueting table for the masses. His disciples began that day with hands that were empty and minds that were full of worry and unbelief. But they ended that day with a basket full of Jesus' provision in their hands and their minds full of wonder and faith. Now we go on mission not worrying about what we have or don't have. We know who has us. We know who is sufficient to meet our every need according to his riches and glory. We know the promise he has made to build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. We know that as we go, he will not only provide us with fish, he will make us fishers of men. And because we know, we go. So Alberta family, let us go on mission to join Jesus in his work in the world. His gospel is power to save. His promise, surely he will keep. His spirit will lead us on beyond our comforts into the masses and into the messes, knowing that they are no match for his marvelous grace. So let's go in prayer. Let's pray.